Today's episode of Nomad Athlete Radio is brought to you by Osea Malibu, the original plant-based, results-driven skincare line. Go to go oseamalibu.com slash athlete for $10 off your first purchase of $50 or more and free shipping for orders over $75. And you get free samples with every order. This episode of Nomad Athlete Radio is also brought to you by Bioptimizers and their new Magnesium Breakthrough. Learn more at magbreakthrough.com slash no meat that's m-a-g breakthrough.com slash no meat and get an additional 10 percent off your normal package with code no meat hi this is hope this is kareem hi this is katie from washington dc and you're listening to no meat athlete radio Hello, everyone. This is Doug from Nomad Athlete Radio, and today I'm with Matt Tolman. Uh, but I'm going to be dipping out here pretty soon because we have an extra special interview. We do. One of my favorite people and definitely my favorite cardiologist, Dr. <laughs> Joel Kahn. Yeah, yeah. Dr. Joel Kahn is, uh, yeah, I'd say most people in the plant-based community, you know, anyone who's kind of follows some of the plant-based doctors has seen Dr. Kahn um, pop up all over the place because he is everywhere on social. He's he's big on different, uh, you know, different podcasts and, and interview series and all kinds of things. So he's, a, he's a smart guy. He's got a number of books and I'm excited to have him back on the podcast. Yeah, and he just wrote a new book, which really focuses in on something, uh, you know, so specific. I, I didn't think it would be relevant, but but I have to say that even as someone who has spent a lot of time learning about cardiovascular systems and and heart disease, like it was really great for me to go back to the basics and just ask some of those questions that I think all of us know a little bit about, but but maybe don't know the fundamentals. So we get into a little bit of that, as well as um, some of the big, controversial, sticky questions of the plant-based world. You know, what about oil? Uh, you know, what about alcohol? And it was really interesting, because I think he has a great perspective on this stuff. And like I say, he is one of the um, most studious, uh, you know, I mean, he just puts out a tremendous amount of content in the form of books and lectures. He's a professor, just one of the smartest guys. So I'm very excited to bring this conversation to our listeners, and I hope everyone learns as much as I did. Yeah, absolutely. What's the name of the book? Um, Lipoprotein A. Uh, you, I, I'm, I hope I didn't uh, forget that, but... Um, yeah, it's it's a specific. Well, I shouldn't get too far into the details. We're going to talk a lot about it in in the ensuing hour. Okay. <laughs> um, but suffice it to say that it is a lesser known but becoming more prevalent uh, topic of research, um, and it is a genetic uh, form of cholesterol, a lipoprotein, um, and it is it's quite widely spread in our gene pool so lots of people have this and as a result um you know we're just learning what that means for your risk of heart disease and uh and other complications so like i say we 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 spend the vast majority of our time talking about the basics you know what's a healthy diet look like in terms of your heart you know and your broader cardiovascular system 
you know, and, and what about those sticky questions? Like I said, alcohol, oil, you know, those are the things that I always like to ask smarter people. You know? <laughs> um, and then we spent a little bit of time on his latest uh, research endeavor, which is lipoprotein A. Sweet. Sounds great. Well, without further ado, why don't we just jump right into it? Okay, sounds good. So welcome, Dr. Khan. Thank you so much for being here. I always learn so much from you when we're together, and I'm so thankful for you making the time. Well, thanks. Pleasure is equal. I learned a lot from you. That can't be true, but I appreciate the, uh, the kind words. So without further ado, let's dive in and uh, get into a topic that has been near and dear to my heart for a long time. My father had his uh, first heart attack at 48 years old. Uh, I remember vividly the day I got home. Uh, my parents were in the hospital. I got home from school and you know, um, I'll never forget that. And, uh, and so this is something that I've lived with um, in the back of my mind for a long, long time. But it's a complicated concept because there are lots of names. You know, you have uh, chronic heart failure, congestive heart disease, you know, uh, coronary artery disease, heart disease as an umbrella. I think, uh, h- help us understand this. Give us the primer so that we can dig into some of the details. Sure, and uh, I'm glad to know uh, that your dad is thriving and doing well. Uh, on, but On a mostly plant-based diet, largely thanks to you, and 73 years young now. Good. Well, heart disease is a broad term. Uh, it is not very specific, so your question is very good. Um, the biggest uh, section of heart disease we spend time on is called coronary heart disease or coronary artery disease, which is the unfortunate but progressive narrowing and blockages that can form in these three beautiful arteries that surround your heart and feed it blood. It can also happen in the arteries to your brain, your legs, your kidneys, your groin. So that's all called atherosclerosis. But in a cardiology practice like mine, coronary heart disease, coronary artery disease is the main disease we treat. Um, And it can lead to a sudden loss of blood flow to the heart where the heart suffers permanent damage, some of it dies, that's called a heart attack. Uh, It can lead to a uncomfortable feeling in the chest without it being a heart attack, a pressure, a tightness when you're hiking, when you're biking, that's called angina pain, never to be ignored, it's a clue. Um, And that's a big, you know, goal in medicine in the United States still is to identify people who are at risk for heart attacks Some of them have a family history like you that makes it obvious, you know, get tested. Some don't have such a family history, it's subtle. And try to identify so we can cut back and cut down and eliminate heart attacks and the suffering and the procedures like bypass surgery and stents. Maybe after that, um, congestive heart failure you mentioned, that's a tricky one. People are short of breath, people's ankle might be swollen, they gain weight, Uh, they have trouble lying flat, it's usually a real serious sign that maybe the heart's weakened, and the most common reason the heart's weak is a prior heart attack. 
But there are other causes. Excessive alcohol with bad genetics can lead to a weakened heart. Viral infections can lead to a weakened heart. Uncontrolled high blood pressure, bad valves, uh, bad nutrition. So these are some of the reasons we find people have congestive heart failure. Hmm. And it can be a serious diagnosis. Um, there are people that have rhythm problems. That's a heart disease. They may feel racing heartbeats, skipping heartbeats. They may black out. They can range from very you know, innocent to life-threatening. So we spend a lot of time on that. I mentioned bad valves or people that get clogged valves, leaky valves. A little less common, but it can be a focus of attention. And then finally, there are what we might call risk factors. There are a lot of people with high blood pressure. In fact, high blood pressure is the single biggest cause of death in the Western world because it leads to aneurysm, strokes, heart attacks, loss of limb, loss of kidney function. So sometimes patients will uh, come to a cardiologist for evaluation and treatment of their high blood pressure. That's a heart disease. Um, high cholesterol, that's under the umbrella of a heart disease. High blood sugar, we share that banner with other doctors, but because of its likelihood of causing heart disease, it's a frequent thing we do here. And um, we know, and I'll end with this, that in many cases, 80% of the burden, the, the pain, the suffering, and the expense of heart disease can be prevented with education and lifestyle. And after that, it's genetics. But what we do every day is more important than any other issue. And we know that that's true of heart disease, brain disease like Alzheimer's, uh, diabetes, even cancer. So we are in charge. We just got to educate and put in action, uh, reasonable plans to stay healthy. Well, um, that's what we're doing here, educating. So I appreciate that. Um, uh, despite my family history and, and thinking that I've studied this, um, you know, just hearing you spell it out in that way is enlightening. So thank you for doing that. Um, you, you spoke a little bit to, to blocked arteries. Um, that's what we hear most of in terms of popular discussion of these uh, illnesses. Um, help us understand, what's the pathway to developing heart disease? You just spoke to some of the prevention that we can do, lifestyle obviously, one that we both believe in strongly. Um, but before we get to prevention, just help, help us understand, how does one, again, you know, leaving that 20%, which may have to do with genetics, but for the vast majority of people, you know, how, how do you, why, why does this happen? Yeah. Well, you can be born with a hole in your heart or some kind of heart condition, but the one we're talking about, atherosclerosis, hardening in the arteries, coronary artery disease, it's never a birth condition. It develops. It's acquired. It might be faster with certain genetic inputs and faster with lifestyle factors, but it develops. Uh, stunningly worrisome data, if you go right now in the South, Louisiana, Mississippi, Georgia, run a little ultrasound on an 18-year-old's neck, you'll very commonly find signs that they've already developed detectable damage to their arteries. And they've had 15, 18, 19 years of fried food and uh, air pollution and poor quality water and uh, you know difficulties that cause this. Uh, they looked at soldiers that died of bomb blasts in Korea uh, in battle, U.S. soldiers. 80% in their early 20s had signs that their heart arteries had damage from this plaque. 
and about 20% it was pretty severe, even in your early 20s. Now, amazingly, one of the few bright points when they repeated that study with Vietnam soldiers that died, and then ultimately Desert Storm soldiers, the numbers have actually gotten better because there's less smoking in America and there's more treatment of blood pressure and cholesterol, even though these were very young people. But we got a lot of work to do still. Um, so it's a very slow and progressive damage. It's not inevitable, except for a very small slice of people that have the most severe genetic disorders. But it's that decision every day about smoking or not, fitness or not, quality diets or harmful diets, managing stress or ignoring stress. It, you know, it's layer after layer after layer, almost like archaeology, slow and progressive. So if you're over 18 right now and you're watching this, you might have damaged arteries already, and we can check to see if that's the case or not. Uh, I'm over 18, and it's a scary thought. Um, I haven't been on the table in front of you, uh, so I, I need to do that. But um, we'll, we're going to talk a little bit more about, uh, about prevention and, and who should be taking those steps. Um, but you've mentioned a couple of things. You know, let's set smoking aside, because I think at this point, um, most of the people watching will acknowledge that smoking is a bad thing for a whole cascade of reasons, and we don't need to talk about that necessarily. Um, but what are some of the risk factors or some of the things that we can control, some of the causes, if you will, speak to, you know, what, what do we do, given the fact that even as a 14-year-old, a 16-year-old, a 35-year-old, this is developing. So what are the steps we can take and why is it developing? Yeah. There's two ways to answer it. I'll include both because they're interesting. Um, there was a real spike in heart attacks after World War II in the United States. Soldiers came home with free cigarettes, fast food restaurants, uh, people stopped cooking at home. Boom. So a lot of research money went into asking the question, why do we see this disease 10 times more than we did in the decade prior? And in about the 1961, the answer came, we can count five reasons we can measure that you may be at risk for early heart disease. Do you smoke? We're back at it again. Do you have a diagnosis of high blood pressure? You still got to ask, why do you have high blood pressure? But do you, have a, do you have a diagnosis of high cholesterol? Do you have a diagnosis of high blood sugar? And does mom, dad, brother, sister have an early event in the heart arena like your father did? And do you have none of the five or five of the five it was tremendously different in describing your risk. Um, and that's something doctors still do to this day. They might open an online calculator on their computer, put in your numbers and uh, give you some kind of general sense of high risk, low risk. And then in terms of what can we do, there have been studies, there's always room for more. Uh, there's two classic studies in England, in, the, uh, in Europe actually, in the mid portion of the last decade um, they looked at 40,000 people that had no heart disease, and 20 years later, they asked the question, did you develop a heart attack? Did you need a bypass? Did you need a stent? Did you drop dead of heart disease? And they had a lot of information when they ran all those numbers through. If you had five or six habits, you were 85% less likely to have heart disease 20 years later. Some of these are going to sound familiar, but if you followed this simple formula, you drop your risk of developing those badly blocked arteries by 85%. Don't smoke, 30 minutes a day of walking, keep your waistline relatively trim, the issue of, of obesity. It was less than 40 
inches for a man less than 35 inches for a woman. Get seven hours sleep a night. Actually, in surprise, four or five plus servings of at 85% in peace that this is a disease brought on by what's often called the Western lifestyle, the Western diet, and can also be prevented with a better than average Western lifestyle, Western diet. And, and so uh, speak, speak to that a little bit more because we hear a lot of debate around dietary cholesterol. So, it, you know, I think, you know, especially for those non-believers, when it comes to hearing about a paleo diet or something, um, you know, what is it really in our control and how much does uh, cholesterol and to that matter oil, right? I want to talk about oil specifically because I think it's so controversial. Um, but, but tell me, you know, how uh, convince me that truly is about what I put into my mouth. Right. So there, again, with this spike in heart attacks 60 years ago, there was the beginnings of a lot of research diving deeper than I just described into why. And there was a theory that the fat in the diet, and it was just a general theory, the fat in the diet um, could be the cause because Americans were getting more affluent, they were eating a richer diet, and uh, it could be the cause of developing clogged arteries. Uh, when that went to be tested, it was refined, and it, ultimately the bullseye was saturated fat, which is a challenging concept because you don't go to the store and buy a tub of saturated fat. It's a component of food, either very little or very high. So saturated fat is very rich in cheeses, full dairy, to some degree egg yolks, red meats, white meats, pork, fish, um, and certainly some uh, rare vegetable foods like coconut oil and palm oil. And some pastries that use lard and butter, like croissants, very high common source of saturated fat. There's a pretty linear relationship, meaning strong relationship. The higher the dietary saturated fat, butter, cheese, lard, the higher your blood cholesterol. Now, there's always going to be an exception because we're not all exact clones. And the higher the saturated fat in the diet, the higher the community's risk of heart disease. The classic example nobody can really knock the data on is in the late 60s, early 70s, in East Finland, there was the highest heart attack rate in the world. And it was a public health problem. 42-year-old guys dropping dead all day long, impacting the economy. They got together, looked at the data, and they instituted a program where we're going to somewhat trick the community. They put beans in the sausage. They substituted margarine for butter. And some of you will say egads, but they did. They certainly also taught quit smoking and you know, manage your fitness, although these were often farmers and rural laborers that were in pretty good shape. Five years later, the heart attack rate dropped again, 85%. That number keeps coming up. Uh, and it's a classic, well-researched and published uh, data from Finland. Then it was one portion of Finland, then the whole country joined in. The whole country experienced the same drop. So saturated fat, bring it up to 2020. Every medical society that comments says limit saturated fat. That's butter, that's cheese, that's lard, that's red meats. Uh, and in my camp, that's coconut oil because that's the exceptionally high plant food that has saturated fat. The, the largest and most recent large cardiology program that showed you can prevent bypass and stents with a healthy lifestyle 
instituted a low saturated fat diet. So this is an old data, it's recent data. A paper, actually two, published this week on preventing brain disease, a little different topic, but a lot of similarity between progressive memory loss and progressive artery blockage. Low saturated fat diet, skip the butter, skip the cheese, skip the meat, skip the fried food. So it's very consistent, but yes, there are noisy voices that distract from the role of cholesterol. Cholesterol is a risk factor. You can be uh, 100 years old and have a cholesterol of 300. It's a risk factor. It doesn't, in every case, cause a disease in every human being. But would you rather your blood cholesterol be 150 than 350? You would absolutely bet that that will turn out for you better. Uh, there will be exceptions to the rule. Uh we should talk about too low because that might be where I'm at, but I've, I've heated your counsel and uh, I think I'm in the 120s. Uh, so proud of it. Um, tell me though, so when, when uh, we talk about oil in, in the vegan community, in my own household, it is a controversial topic. You have well-researched, uh, very effective programs, ones that, uh, um, you know, we're, we're created by friends of ours who uh, advocate for a, a no oil diet, right? And so when we're talking to people like, you know, my extended family who I'm trying to convince, you know, go plant-based, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a real hurdle to imagine that folks are not only going to give up those pastries and uh, the meat and the cheese and all those cholesterol-laden um, foods, but also, you know, take on this, this plant-based lifestyle, enjoy it, and then cut out no oil, which again, you know, I've been doing this for seven, eight years now. And I have to admit, we, we still use oil in cooking. I encourage my wife not to, I, I try to limit it, uh, uh, but it's tough, right? And, and for that matter, packaged foods and restaurants, I mean, really adhering to that kind of lifestyle. It's one thing to do it at home and we're pretty good at it. But like you go to an Indian restaurant, you know, not only are you asking about taking out dairy and you're asking about this and, and for us, you're asking about gluten, but you also have to ask them to leave out the oil, which sometimes they just won't do. How important is it, would you say, for a, an active non-smoker, um, let's leave family history out of it, just a typical, uh, you know, family um, in their 30s, 40s, 50s, uh, would you say, where, where does oil rank in the list of priorities for you? Um, spent a lot of time and a lot of thought and a lot of reading on this topic. So a couple interesting observations. Um, I got to go back to Finland, 1970, highest heart attack rate. The number of calories in their diet from fat on average was 40%. And they had a problem, NASA, and it was identified. It was the sausages and it was the butters. Um, at the same time, in the island of Crete in Greece, uh, there was a diet that resisted heart disease, cancer, and diabetes. The percentage of calories from fat was 40%. This is published data. That led to this razor sharp distinction that we should always use when talking about carbohydrates, proteins, and fats, plant fats, animal fats. 
um, refined carbohydrates, complex carbohydrates, animal protein, plant protein sources, because without that specific conversation, we are exposing our simplicity, which isn't adequate because nutrition science is difficult. And if you look at the entirety of medical science, nutrition science, the data that favors that particularly extra virgin olive oil is a massively better choice than lard, butter, and ghee is undeniable. Of course, it's a backbone of the Mediterranean diet. It's a component of the DASH diet, which is a hypertension diet. And recently, there's a brain-healthy diet called the MIND diet. They all rely on pass up the butter, the lard, and the ghee and use extra virgin olive oil. You can look at the Blue Zone's longevity, and you can actually look at the very biochemistry of some of the chemicals in extra virgin olive oil. They have fancy names, hydroxytyrosol and oleocanthal. It's fascinating their impact in cells, petri dishes, on fighting cancer and lowering inflammation at a very basic level. We know a lot about them, a fascinating topic. But then, so then you, so when you talk about introducing it to your family and friends, you've got an elephant-sized body of science data that says extra virgin olive oil is an advantage. And you've got a, this small little mouse-sized group of research that says, important, if you've already developed very advanced heart disease, you know, you don't, um, you don't swat a fly with an, a, uh, with an AR-15 and you also don't try and, you know, a dog's attacking you, you don't use a fly swatter, you use what you need to use. If you've got advanced bad arteries, you may need to do things a little different than the general public. And to date, going back to the 1950s to 2020, if your goal after doing some research and reading is, I want to reverse your dad as an example. I want to reverse some blockage so I don't get another heart attack, a bypass, a stent. To date, the research says omit the oils. Um, whether a really well-constructed whole food plant-based diet that included extra virgin olive oil might also lead to reversal of plaque is unknown. It's an interesting question, but we simply can't answer it. So I specifically apply a no oil diet in my most advanced heart patients, or at least suggest it. But in general, I don't recommend that the goal has to be a no oil. Finally, quality, quality, quality. I own restaurants. What you're going to find in most restaurants in the oil department are, you know, GMO, poor quality oils sitting in plastic vats that really are unhealthy versus a brown glass bottle from Portugal or Chile or Spain or Italy of extra virgin olive oil. Possibly organic avocado oil. There's just far less data. The data is about extra virgin olive oil. So I have gone back and forth on this. I have a split family. My wife cooks without oil, and she adds no oil. I eat her food with no oil, but I put sprinkled extra virgin olive oil pretty daily on my food. Um, overall, it's in general associated with lower inflammation, favors body weight, surprisingly, um, can be very uh, uh, favorable to cholesterol, blood sugar, and although there are two famous studies, take a healthy stud like you, give you a shot glass of extra virgin olive oil, and measure your artery health, that suggest it might be detrimental. It's about 15 studies that say the opposite. So I will honor that data for the sick heart patients, but I'm not going to limit uh, the joy of a, a bit of a 
bit of grease, plant grease on a, you know, on a salad, on a tomato, on a grilled carrot? Well, as you said, great answer. And as you say, uh, you know, uh, pick the tool for the problem that you're dealing with, right? And everything uh, has a context. And in the context of a healthy diet, thank you for correcting me. You know, if you're not eating refined carbohydrates and the like, you know, um, I guess what my mom would say, since we're talking so much about my dad, I have to give her some some airtime, uh, everything in moderation, including moderation. I don't know if I agree with that. I'm kind of an extremist. So now it's a great time to take a quick break and thank our sponsors for today's podcast. This episode of Nomad Athlete Radio is brought to you by Bioptimizers. And today we're going to be talking all about magnesium. Magnesium is the body's master mineral, powering over 300 critical reactions including detoxification, fat metabolism, (laughs) metabolism, tough word, energy, and even digestion is influenced by the presence of magnesium. There are two big problems, though. Number one, magnesium has been largely missing from U.S. soil since the 1950s, which explains why it's uh, estimated that up to 80% of the population is deficient. And two, most supplements contain only one or two forms of magnesium, when in reality, there are at least seven that your body needs and benefits from. But there's good news, Matt. I have some good news. What's that? (laughs) The good news is that when you do... When you do get all seven critical forms of magnesium, pretty much every function of your body gets upgraded from your brain to your sleep to pain and inflammation. It all improves. And that's why I'm so excited about our friends over at Bioptimizers. And Bioptimizers, of course, you know them as the makers of industry-leading digestive supplements. And they have created something brand new for us. Their research team recently formulated a magnesium supplement with all seven forms of the mineral. They even include trace amounts of something called monoatomic magnesium, which helps make all the other forms even more bioavailable. Bioptimizers calls this product Magnesium Breakthrough, and they're running a very special promotion just for Nomeat Athlete at magbreakthrough.com slash nomeat. That's M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H dot com forward slash nomeat. And you can get an additional 10% off the normal package price with coupon code NOMEAT. I got to say, Bioptimizers always impresses me, you know, as a guy who studies uh, uh, nutrients. Um, I can tell you the soil thing is very real. You know, we do not have the same prevalence of zinc, iodine. Obviously, magnesium is hard to find. So, you know, the fact that they take it to the next level, you know, identifying these sort of substrates, if you will, um, I've never heard of monoatomic magnesium. I'm going to go do some, some research myself, um, but always impressed with what they bring to the table. Absolutely. And this episode is also brought to you by one of your other favorite sponsors. I know Osea Malibu, the original plant-based results-driven skincare line. Osea puts your health and healthy in the planet of our planet first with potent skin and body care solutions that are pure, safe, and effective. OSEA stands for the elements wellness of wellness, ocean, sun, earth, and atmosphere. And their entire line is built on those four pillars and pools from botanical sources around the world to create products that are truly effective. Uh, Matt, yesterday I, um, I came into our bathroom. I opened up the little, you know, the mirror, what is it, medicine cabinet thing? And, uh, and Katie had laid out all of our Osea products in a big line and she organized them from morning to evening to night. 
so that she could have everything organized. She could be OCAing all over, all over, all day long. <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't blame her. Absolutely. Each product is infused with sustainably sourced organic Patagonian seaweed and active botanicals that create nutrient and mineral rich bioavailable base, which can help reveal and illuminate your natural radiance. I know you have a lot of that, Matt. Whether you're looking for hydration, oil balancing, anti-aging, or blemish solutions. And on top of that, every product is sustainably packaged, non-toxic, cruelty-free, vegan, all the good stuff, and made with love in California. Go to oseamalibu.com slash nomeatathlete. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com slash nomeatathlete and get 10% off your first purchase of $50 or more. Free shipping for U.S. orders, over $75, and free samples with every order. Thanks to those sponsors this week, and uh, should we jump right back to the interview? Back at it. Right. Well, let me ask you this then. Alcohol, right? Uh, right? I don't know that you listed it as one of the five risk factors. You might have. Uh, I don't think it is. But I do know from our conversations that um, you're a fan of red wine, but also, of course, it is you know, uh, correlated with adverse out- health outcomes. What, what is America's Healthy Heart Doc think about alcohol? It's indeed a tricky one because of liver disease that's brought on in many addiction, you know, relationship and car accidents. Uh, and so it depends on self-control, which we know we're not perfect at. And there are probably <laughs> genetic and environmental factors uh, that go into that. I mean, you don't get a buzz from extra virgin olive oil, but the third glass of wine may not be uh, as easy to resist because the first two have dulled your judgment centers. However, go to the science. Uh, It's overwhelmingly seen in study after study after study. Populations that were studied, some developed heart disease, some didn't, that a small but consistent intake of alcohol was associated with less heart disease. That has been seen over and over. I did mention in these two studies from actually Northern Europe that that demonstrated you could reduce your personal risk of heart disease by 85%. A glass of wine a day was their data, not mine. And these are what are called multivariate analysis. There probably were 100 data points. Only six showed up being significant to help you guide your lifestyle to prevent heart disease. Glass of uh, wine was one of the six. Uh, this week, we had a very powerful study come out in the news about your ability to prevent Alzheimer's dementia because so much of Alzheimer's is vascular. What were those points that allow you to reduce your risk by 60%. Point number four was a glass of alcohol a day. I don't make this stuff up. You would think if it wasn't important, it would drop out in the analysis and only the most powerful factors would stay in. It shows up. Now, what we have to also weigh it against some clear data that alcohol can be a toxin. Uh, Excessive alcohol to the heart can be a toxin. It might stimulate breast cancer and perhaps other cancers. And you have to balance it. So um, I don't believe moderation in everything is a correct answer. Moderation in donuts and bacon and crystal meth just doesn't appeal to me as a good advice. Uh, moderation in alcohol, a glass of wine three, four times a week if you don't have liver disease and you don't have problems managing it and you don't hop in your car and drive on the freeway 98 miles an hour is still on the list. And I would say, again, quality, too. Um, I I like Europe for wine, not as a snobby move, 
They just have tighter rules on pesticides and uh, there is some data. It's a little cleaner drink. I, I was I was wondering if you were getting uh, your take as a connoisseur, but I'm, you, you brought it back to the health science. So I appreciate that. Um, jumping from biodynamic wines, uh, one other question that has always uh, been interesting to hear you speak on, and that is fasting. Um, so I know you're a proponent and obviously low calorie diets over the course of your lifetime is correlated with more positive health outcomes. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not the expert here. Um, where, where does fasting, you know, fit in for your patients, for you, and, and how does that relate to heart disease? Right. So there is this secret that's still to this day not very well known amongst the medical community and the general community that we internally have certain mechanisms to repair the body of damage to promote health and perhaps longevity. And they won't get turned on without taking a break from eating of some degree. Might be complete, might be a partial break. Perhaps we'll be able to mimic that effect with certain uh, vitamins, nutraceuticals. That's been the pitch about resveratrol and metformin that they may mimic fasting without the difficulty of cutting back. But, you know, that's the overview. Ken, if you're into the idea, I want to stay healthy and live a long life, not dependent on medicines and operations, can fasting help outside of the religious experience that is so common? And we've come a long way in the last 25, 30 years. The biosphere, that crazy project where seven or eight people locked themselves in and almost you know, fasted themselves to death because they were calorie restricted. I did demonstrate some advantages. Almost any animal model, you cut back the amount of calories per day, you feed the animals, you'll see greater longevity and sometimes other markers of health. A little more difficult model in humans, but there has been a great contribution to the science by many people. I always rely on Dr. Walter Longo, University of Southern California, where over the past 25 years, he's been probing, can we study in basic science, how does fasting actually help? Can we let you eat a little bit and still get the benefits of fasting? He calls that fasting mimicking diets. And can we apply it to humans and see some benefits? So uh, to date, there is a plant-based food product that I use with my patients, the fasting mimicking diet. For five days, you cut your calories back, but there is food provided by the scientific effort of Dr. Longo. It's in a box, it's commercialized, and it is the result of dozens of scientific publications, which distinguish it from going on TV and seeing a celebrity talk about some weight loss program of the day. It's to the point now, it's not a therapy, but Dr. Longo's program, as of some science published this week to make it very topical, um, has a powerful clinical impact. There was a study published this week in women with breast cancer getting chemotherapy that based on some science, if you fast during chemotherapy, you may have less side effects and have a bigger reward from the therapy. But using his program, we still do eat some. Um, he showed that in humans, this works with enhanced outcome of women getting chemotherapy. Fascinating data that Amazing. literally leapfrogs the role of food with disease treatment, the role of fasting with disease treatment. Uh, it's a major breakthrough. So um, 
the fasting mimicidiitis five days in a row of reduced calories, plant-based food, no sugar, very low protein, and then you return to your normal diet the rest of the month. Some people like to do it once a month, once every other month, but it may unlock these mechanisms that we can only get to by cutting back and letting the body struggle a bit with a lower calorie or no calorie state for a few days. It's not torture. <laughs> it's not. I can attest to that. Although uh, it takes some time to warm up, right? You get used to it uh, after the first, you know, 12 hours. And then, you know, for me, I, I, uh, I do it on a weekly basis. I'm a huge fan of it. But uh, like I say, you got to got to practice like with anything else. Um, you brought up, uh, first of all, that study does sound fascinating. I'm going to go read it after uh, we wrap up. Um, but uh, you brought up a lot of elements, you know, protein. I'm, I'm curious, and uh, I don't want to take too much more time before getting in to uh, the meat of the conversation, so to speak, uh, with your new book. Um, but briefly, what, what is your take on protein? You know, there's been a lot of talk about it as, as a uh, you know, cancer genesis element, um, but uh, carcinogenic, I, I suppose, would be a better word for that. Um, but what, what is your take and, and how does that relate to your advice to patients? Right. Uh, and it has um, been a focus of a lot of research. And that's what you got to do. You got to go back to the research. There's, you know, it's not my opinion. It's what does the science say? So, and a lot of it's about quality. And of course we need to eat and we need food sources that provide some sort of carbohydrates, some sort of fat, some sort of proteins, um, you know, and there's a lot of range of quality and origin where they come from. But certainly there have been signals for the past 20 years that diets higher in protein from animals, meats, poultry, maybe fish, uh, pork, uh, and certainly the processed meats may actually, on a biochemical level and in clinical studies, promote the development of cancer. They're not the only cause. There's a lot of other things, environmental toxins, genetics, alcohol, and such, but diet choices. So that led, you know, most famously in October 2015 to the World Health Organization announcing we've done definitive research, 800 papers, 22 scientists sat down, bacon, pepperoni, salami, hot dogs, corned beef, cause colorectal cancer. It's not a risk, it's a direct cause. And it's been almost five years and they have had no reason to revise their opinion. It's been challenged, but the science continues to show that. And is so frequent, the same list, pepperoni, hot dogs, bologna, bacon, is also associated with increased risk. Now an increased risk probably causes diabetes, heart disease, congestive heart failure. Uh, and, and brain, uh, the latest recommendations for long-term brain health are to limit meat in general, but limit processed meats for sure. So there's pretty uniform approach. Of course, there's always pushback from people who have skin in the game or just have a different approach, but the science is overwhelming. Um, back to the topic though, protein, because again, protein doesn't mean meat. Protein can come from meat. Protein can come from kidney beans and chickpeas, and they're very different. Protein is amino acids. So I hate to keep bringing back Dr. Longo, but his research team in 2014 published a pretty interesting paper in a little over 6,000 Americans. Higher intake of protein from animals, higher risk of cancer, diabetes, and early death. Lower intake of protein from animals, lower risk of those things. 
there wasn't that relationship when they looked at protein from plants. You can eat all that protein from beans and peas and lentils and not anticipate a higher risk of these diseases that rob us of quality and quantity. Fascinating. It was followed up with a study uh, in 2016. And even as of uh, the last month, because I just wrote an article on the topic, so I read the literature, that um, low animal protein diets, get your protein from beans and peas and lentils, but not dependent on eating lots of chicken, lots of tilapia, the kind of gym approach to weight lifting and weight gain. Um, you have a, a better um, quality of life and cognitive function later in life by uh, modifying your diet. So protein doesn't hold the holy grail. Um, we all need some, but how much and where it comes from is very critical. And at your age and still at my age in my early 60s, uh, it's an advantage to eat a whole food plant-based diet, which is often a little lower in protein, of course, all of plant origin, because that is mimicking calorie restriction. It's mimicking fasting, and it may have some really important health benefits. Well, uh, thank you. I always just a moment. Uh, I always have to uh, to get a primer from you on on these basic uh, concepts, on and it's amazing to me that you can uh, recall not only years but months in which uh, um, studies were published. Um, which brings me to the most recent publication, your new book about lipoprotein A, something of which I know nothing. Um, so I'm really interested to learn about your new book, what you've discovered, why this justifies all of our attention. And I know, um, yeah, so let me, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it open-ended and, and ask you to introduce the, the topic. What is lipoprotein A? Well, uh if you follow media, the world was rocked a bit in February 2017 when the famous fitness trainer Bob Harper from the show The Biggest Loser uh, was reported to have suffered a cardiac arrest, a heart attack at a gym in New York City, nearly died, got shocked back to life, got rushed to a hospital, was in a hospital for several weeks, and had to have an emergency procedure to unblock a totally blocked heart artery, a stent. And about two, three months later, because he made a very full recovery, he's very lucky, he announced on Dr. Oz's show, I inherited a kind of cholesterol called lipoprotein A. I didn't know it until I had my cardiac arrest. They tell me that, you know, I can work around it and do well in, despite it. And that hit headlines, New York Times and other uh, places. It still shows up as Bob Harper's disease. Well, it turns out a Scandinavian researcher in 1963 found in the blood of humans a kind of cholesterol that was previously unknown, and it's not showing up on your blood panel. I am sure that you've had a number of cholesterol panels, and most of the listeners have had, and it might talk about your total cholesterol, your HDL, your LDL, your triglycerides. Lipoprotein A isn't on that. Well, does it matter? It turns out one out of every four persons inherits the ability for their liver to make lipoprotein little a. Three quarters do not. But in the one quarter that do, depending on the gene they got and how active it is, the blood level of lipoprotein little a, because it's a simple blood test if you want to know, can be very high. Well, what's the big deal? Because lipoprotein little a is even worse than LDL cholesterol. 
over the years. Remember, you're born with it if you have it. So you're one years old, your lipoprotein little a can be high in two and three and four and five. It can clog arteries and damage a heart valve that leads it by age 30, 40, 50, or 60 to a greatly increased risk of stroke, heart attack, and actually heart valve surgery. Uh, it's a bad acting cholesterol, but it is a risk factor. I have patients, including today, super high levels that don't have heart disease, but it's a very big factor. It's in fact been estimated one out of every 14 heart attacks, and that's you know many hundreds of thousands, one out of every 14 is due solely to lipoprotein A, and one out of every seven heart valve surgeries, it's called the aortic valve, is due to lipoprotein A. So it's actually affecting millions, tens of millions of Americans, and some of them have clinical events because of it. Um, since Bob Harper, some clinicians now check off the extra box, you know, uh, Matt, we're going to check your lipoprotein little a on your annual physical. 98% of them still don't do it because the American Heart Association and others have not yet recommended it strongly. Uh, that's changing. Why is it changing? The cynic says it's changing because there will be a pharmaceutical drug out in the next three or four years. It's going to be very expensive and patented. There's going to be a good reason for pharmaceutical reps to teach doctors at Grand Rounds and in their office hey, in case you're not up to date, you know, this uh, particle you can draw at any lab in America for blood, and we have an agent to bring it down. Um, it's resistant to statins, so Lipitor doesn't lower it. It's resistant to exercise in most diets, although whole food plant-based diets do lower it some, according to one study two years ago. It does respond to niacin, a B vitamin that some physicians or people buy over the counter something I use in my clinic in these patients, but you have to use it carefully and monitor for side effects. It's been around for decades as an option to lower your cholesterol. But if you have a family history of early heart disease, and bada boom, I'm talking to you, you do, um, and that includes a brother, a sister, grandparents, or parents with heart attack, stroke, bypass, died suddenly, you should know your lipoprotein A. That's the recommendation right now. Europe the cardiologists have started to routinely measure it in everybody. That's where we need to go. And it's a $25 blood test. Uh, it's, a, it's exotic. Uh, no, it's not. It's just a blood test. You can't do anything about it if you inherited it in terms of cutting your gene out. That may be future. We'll identify people at age five and get rid of it so they don't have the rest of their life a risk of this becoming a factor. We frankly don't even know why we have it. And we share it with only one other species, the lowly hedgehog. Humans and hedgehogs are the only two mammals, a couple of the primates, uh, but for reasons nobody knows, next time you see a hedgehog, that hedgehog might have an elevated lipoprotein A. Well, uh, I had a, a million follow-up questions, um, but now I just can't stop thinking about the correlation between our genes and a hedgehog. So uh, <laughs> that right. is fascinating. Uh, tell me, do you think that it's coming about because these are new assays that were developed or is it because of the notoriety of that celebrity's heart attack? Like, why, why are you now focused and why are we just now hearing about it? Yeah, there is an increasing amount of research on it. There is a celebrity status that has helped bring it into the public's mind. But mainly, there's a need. There's an interesting concept called residual risk. 
Doc, I'm taking my blood pressure pill. I'm taking my aspirin. I'm taking my cholesterol medicine. You told me my numbers were good. I go to the gym. I gave up all those French fries, hamburgers, and milkshakes. I'm doing better. Tell me I'm in good shape. And indeed, studies like that show you can lower your risk. This is people who've already had heart disease, you know, significantly doing that. But maybe 50%, 60%, not a trivial number. The leftover risk, it's called residual risk, will still kill some people, will still cause a second heart attack and a need for another stent. Lipoprotein A is the biggest piece of that untreated part of the pie. And make sure it's a fruit pie without too many butters and lards. But the untreated risk is in part lipoprotein little a. So we have to go there. We have to do better. Um, you know, I have patients that have done all that I described, and yet they've showed up in the emergency room, you know, three years, four years after the first heart attack. Well, now, for years, I've been checking lipoprotein A and trying to struggle and deal with it, uh, get on top of it. But um, it's a real issue. It may be that the whole food plant-based diet not only lowers it, but when you eat foods very rich in vitamin C, leafy greens, citrus, it's not meat, it's not pork, it's always plants, you may actually make your arteries stronger and resistant to lipoprotein little a. So we can create more Teflon arteries by upping the plants or eating exclusively our beans, our peas, our lentils, our fruits, and our veggies. Okay, so that's the doctor's orders. Uh, Just what, eat what the hedgehog eats. Is, is, is the hedgehog plant? I have to tell you, I don't know what a hedgehog eats. I, I would think a hedgehog is eating mainly leaves and twigs. Maybe a, maybe a grub here or there. So if you feel the need, grab a grub. <laughs> well, uh, before we wrap up, so these are big numbers, right? One out of seven arteries, I think you mentioned one out of 14 heart yeah, attacks, heart attack. like you said, uh, affecting millions of people. Um, so at what point do you start worrying about it? Or would you worry about it for your kids, for your family? Do you think everyone listening to this should go and, and get checked? That's not the official recommendation yet of the American Heart Association. There actually, if people want to learn more besides reading my book, there is something called the Lipoprotein A Foundation on social media and on the web. They would say high-risk families. But when you're talking about something, this is the most common genetic abnormality that can lead to a heart attack. And you're talking about an inexpensive blood test. I ask my patients, number one, I check it on all my patients, but if I find my patient has it elevated, I ask them, would you want your brothers, your sisters, your children, maybe your parents if they're young enough, to know would it motivate them to eat better, go to the gym, give up those cigarettes? Would it be one more little piece to get them and keep them on track? Uh, I'm not a scaremonger because I can't predict that an individual is going to have a problem. But I favor that we add this on to the routine program and simply take it as a nudge to do more with those things we know we can control, like our diet and our fitness. Well, as you said, right, knowledge is power. It doesn't hurt you to find out where you stand. And uh, I think we started this conversation off uh, suggesting that education is really the first step in pursuing a, a life of vibrant health and wellness. So 
it's a good place to end. Is there, aside from telling everybody that if you're interested in learning more, Google con and lipoprotein, little a, parentheses around the A, and you'll find your new book, of course, uh, it's spelled how it sounds, lipo and protein A. Um, but any last words for those who are, are listening? Can't be eat more plants, that's too easy. I know, I know, I just, uh, I agree. You always strive for that. It would simply be, to quote the great Michael Greger, you know, the body has a remarkable ability to heal itself and to prevent the disease if you eliminate the obstacles and provide the proper environment. We see it every day when we skin our knee or cut our finger and three days later, you can't even recall what happened. We don't see it internally, but it happens internally. So uh, grab on to the power of lifestyle and live a long and healthy life. Uh, maximize the chances you're gonna feel good. Uh, and you really do have that power. Well, a beautiful sentiment to end on. So again, Dr. Khan, thank you so much for spending the time with me. I, I know I've learned a lot. Uh, I, truly, it's remarkable that I still learn from you uh, no matter how many times we chat. And I know th those watching have as well. So thank you for fighting the good fight and continuing to educate all of us. Well, thank you. You keep up the good work. Regards to your family. All right. Thanks so much. Thank we'll you. talk soon. Bye, Matt. Bye-bye.